All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and we are glad you're here. Thanks for coming today. If you are a visitor, we wanted to especially welcome you, as Spence or Leah said actually earlier, um, maybe Peter too. So I'll be the third to say welcome. Glad you guys are with us today. We're in Acts right now. Get to that in just a second. Two quick things. One, I have a cold. I'm just getting over one, so my voice, hopefully it makes it, but just bear with me uh, today. And if I have to hack a bit, uh, I apologize ahead of time for that. But um, uh, So pray for me if you, if you could, just in your mind right now as, and as we go. Uh, but uh, secondly, this is my last Sunday for three months. Uh, most of you guys know that, but if you don't, I'm on sabbatical starting uh, Friday this week. So I'll be working this week, but uh, on a three-month sabbatical with, um, well, me, but with my family, of course, too. And a lot of traveling that we'll be doing and uh, tr- visiting churches, so we won't be around Sundays. Maybe once in June, we have family coming in from out of town uh, here, and if, they, um, and if we can work out coming to church, we're going to bring them here uh, in June, but if that doesn't work out, we just won't be around at all this summer. And so that's partly by design, um, and I've been encouraged by that by a variety of coaches and mentors and other people who have gone before me and done a lot more sabbaticals than I have, um, and the overseers here are encouraging me in that. But I don't want to, and I, I don't want to mention that because... Uh, I think it's probably a sign of health when part of me does not want to do this sabbatical because I love you guys and love this church so much, and I love my job. This is not an off-ramp. I am coming back. Um, that's the plan, and I want to come back healthy and um, rested and rejuvenated and all that kind of stuff, too. So uh, Spence, I think we'll talk more about sabbaticals in the next service. If you want to stick around for that, there's going to be a commissioning and stuff, but if you're not, most of you probably won't. So I just want you to know that I'm checking out here for a few months. So uh, prayers for us would be greatly appreciated these next few months, and I'll be praying for you guys, too. Um, but anyway, with that said, lots to get to in Acts today, Acts 13, 1 to 12, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, the acts of Jesus Christ continue. So the acts of Christ through the actions of the church, the actions of the Holy Spirit through the acts of the apostles and the first Christians we've been reading about. So this is a historical book. It's a theological book. It's a book rich with theology. And it's, it's a great passage today, actually. Acts 13, 1 to 12 uh, begins uh, kind of a, uh, a break here um, Outline-wise, if you're outlining the book, you probably put a break right here because we are going to look at Paul's first church-planting journey beginning today. So a lot of you might know this, but the Acts is, is basically built around, the latter half of Acts, basically from this point forward at least, built around these uh, missionary journeys or church-planting journeys of Paul, the apostle. He takes three of them and kind of a fourth. The fourth is when he goes to Rome and uh, is put under house arrest there and when he appeals to Caesar. And so that's how the book ends, but before that, there are three kind of uh, church-planting journey cycles that he takes uh, with uh, different types of partners, uh, associates, and uh, so forth. Uh, this first one's with Barnabas, um, but we will, uh, we'll talk about that today. But today's kind of the first one of these. So the, the book shifts to focus on him and what the, what the Lord is doing through him, what the Spirit's doing through him, and helping to bring the gospel to these unreached areas closer and closer and closer to Rome, kind of the capital of the world, basically, uh, at this part in history. And so we'll get there later in the book, but it's a lot of exciting stuff happens along the way, and it starts today. So uh, it's a great passage, so turn there again in your Bibles or phone apps if you want. We're going to look at a lot of ecclesiology or church theology today, a lot of Christology or Jesus theology today, and a lot of soteriology, which is salvation theology today as well, which we always do, but the way this passage kind of breaks itself down, we'll look at it in that order. All right, so let's just start reading the first five verses to begin. We'll uh, pause there and make a few comments about the church before moving on. So Acts 13, 1 to 5. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, 
and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. John is the same guy who's called John Mark elsewhere, so just for, uh, for your reference. All right? So a couple of things here, uh, mostly about the church. I want to start here and make a few comments. We'll be seeing this throughout the series. Acts is a great book on what is the church, because this is when the church is born, how it came into existence, what the early Christians did when they got together, what they valued, what they didn't do, what they didn't centralize as well. And here, what, how kind of how mission looked as well, how outward focusedness look, looked as well uh, in the early church. We've been seeing that, but this is kind of the first time we see this very formal sending of missionary types or church planting types. And, and so if you've heard this book kind of uh, talked about in terms of Paul's missionary journeys, you might have uh, maps actually right in your Bible or in the back of the Bible that say Paul's missionary journeys. That's very accurate. Uh, what we're going to do in this series is talk about them, though, as though they're church planting journeys because that's more accurate. Paul's not just going to convert people. He's going to set up elders and overseers and pastors and put into order what happens there when people start converting and becoming Christians. And so he's much more interested in starting churches and then later writing letters back to these churches rather than just kind of uh, broad, sweepingly uh, casting the seeds of the gospel out and hoping that some will convert. Does that make sense? So obviously it's a missionary effort here. It's not wrong to say that. But for clarity, we're going to talk about church planting, the practice of that, the value of that, that the Apostle Paul has, that God has actually, and that we have too actually at Hiawatha. We planted churches and we'll continue to do that as well uh, in our history um, financially and sending our own people to do that as well. So we'll weave that in as the series goes on too. But, but have that kind of in the back of your mind as we keep reading this summer uh, throughout the book of Acts and we see this happen. All right? So let's first take a closer look here at how the church in Antioch is described. So Antioch, remember, is just geographically north of Galilee. So this is a, a Gentile city. It's a very important city, kind of a ascending point for Paul. Uh, throughout the book of Acts, we'll see this. He comes back to Antioch. It's, a, it's an important, it's important theological and logistical kind of place uh, in the book of Acts. So Antioch of Syria. There's another Antioch in, in Asia Minor, so don't get confused by that. We'll see that later actually uh, come up. There's two Antiochs. This is Antioch in Syria. Uh, so let's look at how it's described, though. So first, interesting to note that the church has grown to the point where other prophets and teachers are being raised up who are not apostles. So this is really healthy. We're seeing it's not just the disciples of Jesus that are continuing to become the leaders of more and more and more churches in different cities, even from a distance, but that this healthy thing of other people being raised up to be leaders in churches on lay or kind of formal paid levels. And so we'll talk more about that again as the series goes, but here we see that other prophets, other teachers, unnamed, who are not apostles, are being raised up to manage and care for the church and teach and mature the church and know the Bible well and prophesy, which just means to speak truth, the truth of the gospel over themselves and others in, in a variety of ways. So it's a really cool thing to see the Spirit is at work in these ways, all right? Then we see a few names listed here of prominent figures in the church, including, and I'll focus on this guy, Menaean, who is mentioned as a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So here's a question. Why is this included, do you think? 
Why is this clause here? Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Why does Luke include this clause about being a friend of this particular guy? So Herod, remember, this is not the Herod we've been talking about for the past two weeks, if you've been here. That's Herod Agrippa I. There's a ton of Herods in the Bible, so uh, try to hang tight as we go through all this. But there's Herod Agrippa I that killed James and who was eaten by worms last week. Remember that? That's Agrippa I. This is Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, who was the guy who cut the head off of John the Baptist. Remember that story? If you've read the Gospels before, cut the head off of John the Baptist, kind of by way of his mistress and niece, another whole story there, but who also mocked and showed contempt to Jesus, dressed him up, laughed at him when he was on trial before his crucifixion. So this is that Herod, all right? So Menaean, a lifelong friend of that Herod, is now a Christian. Isn't that great? Mix this in with Saul being mentioned, who was a former Christian murderer, murderer of Christians. And what picture of the church are we getting here? I mean, talk about a bunch of misfits, right? Rebels, sinners, former God-haters with friends in very, very low places. That, according to the Bible, is the church. That's who they are, now saved by Jesus. They are now believers in the gospel, washed, cleansed, and re-identified as children of God. And, and here's the thing. This is Hiawatha Church as well. This is who we are as a local church. We need to remember this. So many advantages. Not, it's not just to say that this is the true way of thinking about it, the right way of thinking about it, but there are benefits and advantages to thinking about this as well. That we are not pristine sometimes sinners, but far gone enemies of God who have been reconciled to him. We are like Menaean, an unlikely candidate for salvation, but saved anyway, shockingly, because of God's great love for us. So some of the benefits to this would just be that if we really view the church as a bunch of just messy people, we won't be as shocked when we're hurt by the church. We won't be as shocked when there are messes. We won't be as shocked at hypocrisy. Not to condone any of that by any stretch, but to say that we won't, we won't be shocked. We are because at our core, we are enemies of God who have been saved by him and called friends. We are enemies of each other who are being reconciled. That's the church of God. A bunch of Menaeans, a bunch of Sauls, a bunch of murderers, a bunch of Herods. And so um, if, we, if we view ourselves this way, it will not shock us when we're hurt. Again, not to condone it, but we this view will, will make us less pretentious. We will not take ourselves that seriously, and we'll have uh, open arms. This is the second thing, open arms for people who come in messy as well. So the second thing is, it helps us show hospitality to people who are very messy. We will not close our doors to people. We will be excited to welcome people when we view ourselves in this light. Not as good but is wicked. And then third, it will give us a ton of hope as well. Uh, when we see the church in this lens, you know, that, that person you've been praying for for years, your sons or your daughters, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, that seems like they're a billion miles away from God and nothing seems to be happening. Well, look at what's happening here. and Nothing's impossible for God. Nothing's impossible for him. And the church is painted in this very 
messy light to show us that the worst of people are saved. The most unlikely of people are saved because God saves, we don't save ourselves. We don't intellectualize our way in. We don't good works our way in. It's not for clean people. It's for dead corpses. It's for rotting flesh. It's for mummies. It's for people like us. And that's when we understand that, we understand the gospel that way. Kind of like that last song got it. We're all crooked deep down, but then all of a sudden the gospel starts to make more sense and we want the gospel and we speak it over each other more and we're not disillusioned by the churches quickly, thinking that it's supposed to be this perfect place. It's just not. And we know this. We should know this. But, but if you don't, hear this. That this is not, that's not the church. The church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for perfect saints. All right, that's the first thing we, we learn. That's important theology. The second piece here is um, ministry is a team effort. All right, the second thing about the church is ministry is a team effort. A couple things, just note the strong sense of community and plurality in the Antiochian church. So meaning they worshipped and prayed together, they heard God's voice together, they send people together, and they go out together. No one's alone. And one reason this is the case is because of, I think, something very core to who God is. The Christian God at his core is a relationship. He's a trinity. At the very core of who God is, is a friendship. It is the essence of love because God is not a unitarian God, not a singular one-person God entity, but Christians for all of history, as the Bible teaches clearly, have believed that God exists in a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's no coincidence here in Acts 13 that there are three men sent out in a Trinitarian way. Not that one or two or four are somehow invalid for ministry. That's not the point. The point here is not a forever paradigm for every time someone or a team of people is sent out to start churches or to do anything ministerially. But the point here is to express theology to us. And here's the thing. The people of Cyprus, think about what they're seeing. The people of of Cyprus saw this team exist in a Trinitarian way. And and by by that I mean in love for each other, relying on each other's gifts, befriending one another, not competing with one another, but submitting to one another out of love. Because when people see this, whether they're Christians or not, when they see Christian ministry happen in a teamwork, loving, partnering kind of way, in a communal kind of way, What they're seeing is they're seeing a picture of God. And drilling deeper, they're seeing a picture of the gospel. Not just one person knocking on a door with a message, but a living, breathing picture of God himself who is bringing love to people through Jesus. One of Jesus' last teachings before he dies is in John 13, 34 and 35, where he says when he's washing the disciples' feet, they're having the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, and this is, this is the commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, and we can infer I'm about to love you on the cross sacrificially, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
if you have love for one another. Tons of say about this, but to be a disciple of Jesus is lots to say, but so this is an in-part statement, but this is a big one. To be a disciple of Jesus is to love other Christians. To be a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus, is to love other Christians. In your local church, maybe outside as well. There's ways to do that, of course. But Christians you know. So the one another's in the Bible are, are expressions of love and generosity and, and all of that towards other Christians, not global humanitarianism. Well, that's fine. That's a good, not a bad thing. That's not what this is talking about. Jesus is not saying my commandment is global humanitarianism. He's saying Christians love each other, die for one another. As I'm about to show you the fullest extent of my love, do that for one another. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And in that love, to express the fact that salvation is not Unitarian law-keeping, that's not salvation, but Trinitarian redemption by way of Jesus' shared blood for us. So, in other words, our message as Christians is not of a Unitarian God who just told us to do something in this very punctiliar, one-way, non-relational way, but a Trinitarian God who shared his relational self with us even after everything went to hell by taking the brunt for us on the cross. And the truth here that we get a glimpse of in Acts 13 is Christians in community loving each other show this message better than individual churchless Christians do. Christians in community loving one another show the message of a Trinitarian God, the message of Jesus' shared blood, him saying, I want to share myself with you. That's what salvation is. Christians loving one another and doing this in a teamwork kind of way Show, not just say the message, show the message better than individual Christians do, especially who are not a part of churches. That's just the reality. And, and that's, that's my prayer for myself, for you guys. Spence and I pray this every week for you guys, whether you know that or not, through the blue cards. I'll be praying for you all this summer that, that way. Pray it for me. I'll be praying for you guys on sabbatical that, that you all would love one another. That's one of the best ways to spend your time praying for your church is that we would love one another, even people that you're enemies with inside the church, that you're very, very different from inside the church. That's who we are uh, sometimes, right? We're very good friends too, but but the point is the church is sometimes made up of natural enemies who are being reconciled first to God through Jesus' blood, then downstream of that to each other. And it's a beautiful thing. There's no no other place in the planet in in reality that, that this actually happens except in, in, in the church. Or at least that's the possibility by the Spirit of God among us. All right, ministry is a team effort. And there's tons of practical things there I can't go into today, um, but think about it in those terms. Think about yourself as a part of the mission. Think about friendship. Think about doing evangelism together. Think about throwing parties together and having non-Christians there with you. We talk about that a lot um, wish I had another hour just to talk about just different ideas. But as summer approaches, think about this. What does it look like to not just be alone when you think about evangelism, but together with other people and um, praying for one another and having yeah, public demonstrations of love amongst other Christians being shown to non-Christians. There are ways to do that in a very, very powerful way that... Um, that moves mountains. 
All right, let's move on. Acts 13, 6 to 12, we'll uh, keep reading here for the, the second part. All right. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. All right, so remember uh, in Acts 9, the apostle Paul, who's Saul, but who here is also called Paul, he had kind of a similar story. Remember that? He is, he is struck blind as well, where scales fall from his eyes later when he's healed, but before that, just darkness comes upon him and he's blinded. He's kind of like passing this on to someone else here, which I wonder if it kind of felt good for him to do that. Like, now the blessing of this is yours. I'm done, you know? You can have the blindness. Probably not, but that's what I like to think. But anyway, now he's getting the same kind of treatment. We'll come back to that, just talk about the significance of that here in a minute. But there's a pattern in Acts, at least hear this, there's a pattern in Acts of people being blinded before they're saved. So it's a big deal. Okay, we'll come, come back to that here. Before, though, we do that, I want to talk about, sorry, I forgot to switch slides there, but we'll talk about um, Saul a bit, and then we'll look at the character of Bar-Jesus. Bar means son of, so uh, it's not Jesus Christ. He's the son of Jesus Christ. He's the son of another man named Jesus. Jesus was a very common name in the first century, so he was the son of a man named Jesus, Bar-Jesus, also called Elymas, uh, the magician. So a lot of names for this guy. We'll talk about him second, what we'll learn about, about the gospel through him. But first, let's look at Paul, who is... Um, who's also called Saul, or Saul, who is also called Paul, all right? So here, here's the point in the, the Bible, in Acts, where this name change kind of formally takes place. He will essentially be known as Paul for the rest of Acts and into the rest of the New Testament as well, with a couple of small exceptions. So one question I want to ask is, why do you think this is taking place, or, or why is this taking place? How is this theology and not just historical data. How is this not just a historical book moment for us here, where we say, okay, that's when it happened, but what are we learning here about Jesus and about salvation and about the church and about the gospel from this uh, seemingly benign kind of clause, all right? A few things. First, Paul, we learn later in uh, Acts, Paul was born a Roman citizen. And you could become a Roman citizen in a variety of ways. You could, you could pay for it, which a lot of people like paid for it. Uh, Paul, though, was born into uh, Roman citizenship, which meant his, his dad was uh, maybe bought it himself or something like that. But he was a Jew ethnically, but he was born a Roman citizen. So Saul is his Jewish name, and Paul is his Roman name. And so on one level, very matter-of-factly, the name change signifies that pretty much from this point forward, he is going to be an apostle to the Gentiles, not the Jews. More on that, I think, in next week's passage. 
So I'll, I'll save that for Spence or whoever's preaching. But there's this moment where he says, I'm not going to the Jews anymore. I'm not going to start preaching in synagogues. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm, I'm an apostle to non-Jewish people as a Jewish man. But when he's named Paul, it signifies that. Now he's going to be that type of apostle. All right? But here's the thing. In this dual citizenship, Jewish and Roman, in this duality, he also signifies to us Christ, who also had a duality to him, in that he was divine, but also human. This is a major, major theme in the Bible, if you're not privy to this yet. Think of people like in the Old Testament, like Joseph or Daniel or Esther, they all had this kind of dual citizenship to them as well. They were Gentile royalty, and they were Jewish in ethnicity. And so what we see throughout the Bible is God has been hinting at and reminding us all along that his chosen plan of salvation would come through a type of dual citizen, namely Jesus Christ, a bridge builder between us and God. And so Saul, the apostle here, the apostle of Christ, who's a Christ figure himself, we've already seen that a lot in the book of Acts, is a reminder of this, that the incarnation of Jesus into human flesh as the Son of God, who also became like us in his humanity, the dual citizenshipness of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus into flesh, had to come so that substitution could come later. If Jesus didn't become human, he couldn't die for us. And so Paul's dual citizenshipness reminds us of this two-nature person of, of Jesus Christ. As so many figures in the Bible uh, take cue and, and follow suit, all right? That's the first thing. Second thing is Paul means humble. Paul is a very humbled man. So on one level, we're just seeing his name mean something to him, uh, to his like, story, his character. He's a very humbled man. When Christ appeared to him in, in Acts 9, he thought he was right, and he found out he was 100% wrong. Yet he was loved. He became the most prolific New Testament letter writer ever, not because he deserved it, but because he was given it. So his name echoes this mentality and calls all of us, if we're Christians in the room, all of us to think and live similarly, that we, are, we too are murderers saved by grace, not by works. So, therefore, be humble and loosen the grip on your desire to be praised and worshipped. That's, that's, that's what God gets and Jesus gets, not us. Or just the mentality that all is given, nothing's earned. Everything's given. Paul knew this. Everything's given. Nothing's earned. He writes that in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, what do you have that you did not receive to the Corinthian church? What do you have in life that you weren't given? Implied answer, nothing. Everything is given. Even if you work really hard for something, God's behind the curtains of your effort. And he gave you that. He gave you the circumstances of that. He gave you the intelligence to, to ascend to it. He gave you the ability to understand things and the, the parents to fund things and whatever it is. Everything is given, nothing's earned, especially salvation. But we see it in all, all forms of life. So therefore, if that's, if that's the case, then be humble. Third thing is, <clears throat> the third reason why Paul is mentioned here and why there's a shift in name is a contextual reason and a play on words. Sergius Paulus, uh, Paulus is Paul's first convert, and the fact that he's named this in context right along Saul's name change, so again, note how Paul 
is in the name Sergius Paulus, it signifies and symbolizes how we too as Christians take Christ's name when we're saved. So again, like the proconsul had Paul in his name, so do we have Christ in our names. We're called Christians now. Remember in Acts 11, where it said, that's when in Antioch, that's when Christians were first called Christians? And it's stuck ever since. It's a God-given name. We call ourselves Christians because we, we have Christ's name on us. Or, or think of um, <clears throat> Revelation 3.12, where it says, <clears throat> when we're saved, we are, Christ writes his name on our foreheads, and it's his own name. Did you guys know that? That when you're saved, Jesus writes his name on your forehead, and you don't belong to yourselves anymore. You belong to someone else. You are you belong to your king, your creator, and that can't be erased. That's not a future thing. That's not something we try to earn. That's something we experience right now. We belong to King Jesus. We're not earning that. Acts 13 shows us this, <clears throat> that like Sergius Paulus has the name Paul, so do we already have the name, have the name Jesus. That, those three reasons why, this is why I think we see this here theologically. One's contextual, one's linguistic, or kind of a name meaning, and uh, one is almost kind of, um, it's, it's a missional thing or Christological thing and how it re- references Christ. But in all these things, we see that this is not just the name change. This is meant to say, this is what Christianity is. This is what happens when you're saved. This is the outcome of faith that's given, not earned. This is, humility's possible. And it's not even about us, it's about Christ seeing his two-nature person here, his dual citizenship and how he became human to, to die for our sins. So three things. But let's shift gears now <clears throat> to this other individual, Bar-Jesus, and we'll, we'll look at him for a second. Or Elemus, the, the magician. Okay, so here he is um, before the proconsul. Um, now let's look at a couple of things. First, Paul kind of goes off on him, right? So he doesn't like pull back. He says, he says, why are you doing this? You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you, you, you're, you, you human, full of villainy and all deceit. Why are you lying? Why are you making straight things crooked? Why don't you stop it? And so <clears throat> what, the way he starts, I think, is first by being a so-called son of the devil. Uh, what's happening here is he's revealing to us what the main M.O. of the devil is. What's the main kind of mission of the devil? And that is turning people away from the faith. So this is what the guy's doing. Uh, Bar Jesus, Elemis, he's turning the pro, seeking to turn the proconsul, this other individual, away from, quote, the faith. That's really important. So that's not like rocket science, obviously, because obviously the devil is against Jesus and he's the opposite of him, and he's always seeking to, to dissuade people away from Christ. So obviously that's the case, but it's also significant here that Christianity is called not Christianity, or like it is elsewhere in the Bible, like the way or something like that, but here it's called the faith. And that's important because it means that he's not just turning people away from Christianity broadly speaking, but he's turning people away from, quote, the faith. In other words, he's promoting what the opposite of faith is, which is what biblically? What is the opposite of faith biblically? What is he promoting 
as the counter or the opposite of faith? And the answer is the law. Faith in law or faith in commandments are one of the strongest polarities and dichotomies in the entire Bible. To turn people away from faith or the faith is to turn them to some form of law-keeping as the means by which one is saved. And since he was a Jewish magician, he was familiar with the laws and the commands of the Old Testament. And so it wasn't like dark magic that was used to dissuade the proconsul, but it was a logical dissuasion. Remember, he's a false prophet as well. So he's falsely prophesying uh, against the gospel by promoting works, saying it's not about the blood of Christ, not about the work of God, it's the work of your hands. This is what he's saying. <clears throat> Paul's words here when, when he says, and Peter did a great job before that last song summarizing this, um, totally stole my thunder. Where'd he go? But anyway, it's fine. I'll just say it again. Paul's words here of, um, when, he, when he says, why are you making crooked the straight paths of the Lord is very helpful because requiring works to be saved makes crooked Otherwise, simple, straightforward narratives uh, like, like gospel narratives and the, the simple, straightforward narrative of Christianity. And so there's two ways we can think about it, a la Paul's words here. A crooked path that we make to get to God through our good works or a straight path of the Lord belongs to Jesus, a straight path of the Lord that he takes to run to us. Notice the straight path belongs to Jesus. Not a path that we make, not a path that we forge, but a path of the Lord or of Jesus that he takes to make a beeline to us. In a straight, simple, I want so badly to get to my people to save them, speaking for God here, so badly to get to, get to them, I'm not going to take the scenic route, but the fastest highway possible. See how different that is? A crooked way that we make through our good works to get to God? Or do we believe that he paved a highway to get to us? A straight 35W highway down to Dallas to get to us. The difference is critical. Which is it? It's night and day, oil and water. Believing one makes you a Christian Believing the other makes you not. You know, it's, it's another way of saying, why are you overcomplicating the faith? When you make something that's straight, crooked, you make it too complicated, right? You're overcomplicating it. So it's kind of like Paul is saying here, why are you overcomplicating the simple gospel? Or why are you requiring more than what God does? That's making straight things crooked. It's, it's saying that, yeah, Jesus' blood is good, but you also need to do this and ascribe to this and abstain from this. It's overcomplicating something that's very simple and straight. Why are you making it harder for people to be saved, Elemus? Why are you doing that? Why are you mucking it all up by requiring more than Jesus' blood? Stop it. This is what Paul is saying. Okay, here's a big question, though. When we look at Elemas himself, the man, when he's struck blind, 
What happened to him when he was blinded for, for a time and mist fell on him? Was what happened to him a good thing or a bad thing for him? <clears throat> or to use different language here, what is it, was it a good thing or was it a grace or a punishment? And I'm going to argue it's both, um, but just have this in your mind as we go. We'll start with the grace and we'll, and we'll look at this, the, the punishment side, uh, which drives us to Christ uh, here in, in just a second. But first, the good side. So if you were here last week, remember what happened to Herod? Herod stood up and, and people called him a god. He didn't repent and he was struck down, right? And worms ate him from the inside out, parasitic worms, and he, and he was buried. So take that for a second and hold it right next to what happens to Elymas. Which is more severe? Herod's obviously, right? Obviously. Because in Elymas' case, the magician's case, he's blinded just for a time and mist comes down on him, not a thunderstorm. I mean, mist, mist itself, too, is a very gentle thing. He could have seen, Paul could, could have said, or Paul could have invoked, or God could have allowed for a hurricane to appear over his head. But a mist is very gentle, right? It's very, it's very gentle and calm. In fact, in Isaiah 44, 22, when mist is talked about, it's talked about in a good way. It says, I will, God says, I will blot out your sins like a mist. So that means to my people, because Christ is coming, a day is coming where I will make your sins evaporate before you, disappear before you like a mist. That's what Isaiah is prophesying here, 700 years before Christ, but looking ahead to him. So God will make our sins vanish. And so could it be then that <clears throat> Bar Jesus's or Elymas's mist-like blindness is suggesting that maybe another friend of Herod type person is about to be saved? But maybe before that, <clears throat> God needed to blind him to what he thought he knew and then reopen his eyes to grace. I don't have this on screen, but Revelation 3.17, if you want to look it up, write it down. Revelation 3.17, Jesus there, and I'll summarize, when he speaks to the church in Laodicea, he says that there, you guys, you think you, you can see, you think you're healthy, you think you're rich, but you've forgotten that you're poor, blind, pitiable, and naked. Because you think you're good and strong, there's no room for me anymore. Do you guys remember when Jesus is on the outside knocking, where Jesus says, behold him at the door and I knock? That's that church. He's outside the house, so to speak, of the hearts of the Christians in that city because they've forgotten the gospel, which is preceded by the truth that they're not good people, that they're spiritually blind. And so maybe here, like it was for Paul earlier in Acts 9, that this is another instance in which God is graciously blinding him to what he thought he knew. So his eyes could be open and he could see Jesus and not himself anymore. Similarly, being led by the hand is actually spiritually a good thing, right? If we think about it, spiritually speaking, this is what we all need. And if we don't think we need it, then we don't think we need Jesus. We're incapable. Maybe this guy thought he was strong, and we know that he was because he was opposing faith and promoting law or works. But maybe this guy thought he was strong when he was weak. And so to the question, to Paul's question, will you not stop opposing God? What's the answer to that question, do you think? When Paul's saying that, it's kind of rhetorical in the moment, I think, but when Paul says, will you not stop making crooked what God is 
has made straight? Will you not stop mucking it all up? Will you not stop opposing God? What's the answer to that? I think the answer is no. He would never have stopped unless, like Paul before him, like Manaean, and like us, God interrupted his life, blinded him to what he thought he knew, tripped him up, humbled him so he could see his sins and run to Jesus and be saved. So if that's the case, this is a grace. This is a good thing God does this. It's a type of loving discipline that he does this so that later he can, he can be saved, just like Saul had the same experience before him. And he could join a church of misfits, just like ours. Um, <clears throat> a dark magician, an opposer of God, an enemy of God, who's becoming a friend. Again, just like Saul the murderer, just like Manan, the friend of this terrible dude, and just like people like us. Amazing grace. <clears throat> On the other side of things, though, this is a type of punishment as well. He is an enemy, Elemus is, an enemy here in the story who is being blinded and stopped so that someone else, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, might not be tripped up by his false teaching. That's kind of the more straightforward reading in one sense, right? Like, there's this problem, there's this guy who's making crooked straight paths, and Paul says, you're blind, here comes the darkness and the mist, and he sort of dealt with, the the, the proconsul sees a miracle, um, but he's prevented from continuing to false teach so that he can hear the true gospel and be saved. And here's why this is important. On, On one level, it shows the power of God over darkness for us. I said before, this is not a magic competition primarily, but it does, I think, remind us a bit about Moses and Pharaoh's magicians in Exodus, where we do see Moses square off against these dark magicians, and they have a miracle battle, and Moses wins out. If you guys have read Exodus before, remember that? Where there's this magic competition? It's kind of like that here. We've seen that a lot in this book, where there's a second Exodus happening. It's a big motif in Luke, which I won't comment on more today for time's sake, but that again is coming up here. It also shows us, though, the theme of someone else experiencing darkness and affliction that precedes our salvation. And this is a big thing I've been doing for a few weeks, and I'll do it one more time here, because this is what it means. That the theme of someone else experiencing darkness and affliction, but preceding the salvation of someone else, well, who does that remind us of? Who should it? Who does that point us to? It should point us to Christ who like Bar-Jesus, there's actually two Jesuses here in the story, there's Bar-Jesus and there's Jesus, who's there in, in the words of, of Paul, but also hinted at in Bar-Jesus' experiences. But Jesus and Bar-Jesus both experience darkness. Jesus does it on the cross. Luke 23, it says it was, it was the sixth hour, and, which is noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, <clears throat> while the sun's light failed. This is language that Luke, who also wrote Acts, same author, is borrowing from his first volume to point us ahead here to uh, what's happening with Bar-Jesus. So this happened with Jesus. Bar-Jesus now is going through a very similar type of affliction. The point being, Bar-Jesus' afflictions resemble Jesus's, so we'll see it and think back about Christ. That's the point, the theological point. Then, this verse takes on added significance for us as well. 
Then it says in verse 12, then and only then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this is just classic ministry. This is good preaching. This is mixing the word with the act here. This is classic Jesus to do this. And we'll see it more in Paul's ministry. But Paul's message, his preaching, his words, mixed with a physical demonstration of the gospel in bar Jesus experiencing darkness and no sun for a time. So the the demonstration of the gospel through the magician's dark suffering, those two things together is what leads him to faith. And that's the point for us as well. Jesus on the cross bears darkness for us. Jesus takes on sin for us. He's afflicted for us. Like Bar Jesus couldn't see the sun for a time, Jesus couldn't see his father, the true son, for a time. Like the proconsul, you and I, we, we have watched another be afflicted. Another person experience darkness. We're in the place of the proconsul here. Someone else is experiencing darkness, and we're being passed over. The proconsul's not sinless. He done just as bad things as Manan, the friend of Herod, Herod, Saul, all these guys who are Christians. Like, why is he being passed over here? Why are we passed over? <clears throat> why are we being struck blind? The only answer is Christ. There's a substitute. There's a focus for God's wrath. There's a focus for judgment, a focus for debt pain, a focus for hell that's being diverted from us and poured out on the substitute. This is love. Immediately, darkness and sin fell upon him for you. This is the gospel. Do you believe it? What are you going to do with the man Christ Jesus? Are you going to put your faith in him or continue to rely on your strength, your ability to see your good works and your own notion of self-autonomy? That, that's, that's, the, that's the crux of the, the gospel argument or, or what Paul continually brings to people and acts is these are the two choices and you can't blend them. Believe in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, that he bore darkness and you will be saved, and then you will be like all of us who already have been, many of us in the room, we are invited to walk in the opposite of this. We are invited to walk in the light. This is the light of the world, the light of God, experiencing darkness for us. Classic substitution. Us, dark souls. And, <clears throat> and bar Jesus here, who's kind of, the, in one sense, the opposite of Jesus, but in another sense, it reminds us of him, kind of like Bizarro Superman, uh, in the comics, you know, like the opposite. It's kind of like, well, it's, it's kind of the same, the same figure, but, but also very different. That's what I think of. It's the same kind of thing. Here, bar Jesus reminds us of Jesus. Both suffered affliction and other people were passed over. That's the gospel, guys. Never forget it. Find joy in it for the billionth time or the first time today. God sent his son into the world to die that you might live for dark souls like us. So let, let's, uh, let's sing a couple of songs here to close and, and worship God together. God, thank you for this, this passage. Thank you for what it reminds us of.
And it's ultimately you. God, you are the hero. Whether it's people or events or passages referenced or allusions or symbols, uh, words, you're always the goal and the point. God, teach us to read the Bible in a way that makes you the center and not us. Continue to teach us to do that as a discipline, as a church. Um, Father, thank you for taking away our sin. Thank you for burying the darkness. Thank you for suffering affliction. Thank you that on the cross the sun went out for a time, like for Bar Jesus, it went out for a time to remind us that you're constantly demonstrating in the story how so, it's so important that what Jesus did. It's so central. It was not a speed bump. It is the thing all of the scriptures either point ahead or back to to constantly remind us this is the gospel. And the false prophecies of do good and you will be saved are rebuked. The false gospels of be a good person and God will save you is called out, blinded, rebuked, called demonic. It's called the son of the devil teaching. It's called false. It's called villainy. It's called theft. And it's called a lie. God, help us do the same thing in our hearts and for the sake of our church as we move forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.